everybody. Thanks for checking in to a lighter side of serial killer podcast. I am your host, Keith Rovere. I'm an author and I'm also a collector of true crime memorabilia. If you're familiar with my books or your, my social media pages, uh, you know I like to reach out to those whom the world deems unlovable, the serial killers, the violent offenders. Um, if you read my book, The Story of You about Yumasaki, I have a big chapter on prison recidivism. Uh, we live in a country where it's more punishment-minded prisons. So the people going into prisons, they leave twice the months that they were when they come out sometimes. And people ask me all the time, why do I reach out to people like these? So that they should be punished. They should be tortured. They should be killed. Okay, you know, I can't make too much of an argument against that. But I would say is that person who was a serial offender was your neighbor. And he was getting out of prison after serving 25 years, and he was not rehabilitated. Do you want that person coming out living next door to you and your children are coming off the bus or walking to the park back and forth in front of his house? Or would you want somebody who now knows love, now knows compassion, uh, somebody who is rehabilitated? So that is my argument. That is why I do it. What about the victims? Well, this is why I do what I do. This is why I reach out to people like that. Um, that's why I have them on my show. That's why I support them and encourage them what they do by buying their artwork and giving them a platform, giving them a voice. Um, I understand that people um, have a problem with me. Um, I get flack all the time from not just the books that I write on my social media pages. I mean, not too much. I think people, uh, when they really take a deep breath and they see what I do, um, I'm not just a morbid person collecting true crime art and giving you guys a platform and um, having these guys on my social media pages and they, as they allow me to record their phone calls and um, share what they have to share and let them know about artwork and how they can support them. Um, it's not a morbid thing. It's actually, if you look at it uh, intelligently, um, I'm very fascinated, as I think most people are, with the psychopathic mind. Um, and some people aren't psychopaths. I mean, just their, their upbringing and their surroundings. Um, you get gangs on the street shooting people left and right. Some of those uh, people in gangs on the streets of you know, Detroit, California, and Philly, um, some in Chicago. Some of these guys, they would not call psychopaths, but they have maybe have, you know, 10, 20 bodies um, underneath them that they killed. And they're not considered psychopaths per se. It's their environment. Um, but I do find fascination with the psychopathic mind. Uh, you don't have to be a killer to have a psychopathic mind. Um, in fact, in, in my book, The Story of You, I talk about somebody who has damage to their amygdala. And it seems to be, the amygdala seems to be the trigger. That's where if that's damaged, um, it could pretty much uh, destroy your ability to feel fear, to have empathy. It's also like your, your brakes, like it brakes on a car. Like if somebody cut you off or somebody gave you a, a bump to shoulder in a, at the club or at the store, whatever it may be, initially you might want to smack them, but oh, I better not. Well, when that amygdala is damaged, they don't have the, they don't have the brakes. They don't have the stop button. So I really get into that with my book, The Story of You, is do they have free will to stop? I give one example of someone with Tourette's. You know, do they have free will not to spurt out a racist term? You know, because some forms of Tourette's, they'll say if somebody's overweight, you might hear them say fatso or black person walks by the N-word or whatever it may be. No, they don't have free will to stop. They have a brain abnormality or the, the, uh, the twitching in their hands. I give an example of you over here. Um, a white guy using uh, a racial slur in front of a black woman and her child. And then he strikes her in the throat, killing her right there in front of her child. You might think, what kind of an evil person is this? Well, that person has Tourette's. 
and he could not help himself. In fact, he's married to an African-American woman, spends his life uh, supporting African-American causes. Guilty or not guilty? You know, there's a surgeon in New York who, after delivering a baby, carved his initials in the woman's stomach. Very large. You can see this. This is a true story. You can see this. You can Google it. Very large on a woman's stomach. You think, what kind of psychopathic mind is this? No, he had Pick's disease, kind of a, a branch off of Alzheimer's. In fact, when all the truth came out, the lady didn't even want him to see jail time. And there was a settlement in the case, I believe, but I don't think he really did any jail time. Guilty or not guilty? You know, I'm not saying a psychopath should walk free. Surely not. But some forms, or some people have brain abnormalities where they don't really have a choice sometimes. And again, I want to bring this to light through neurology and uh, neuroscience is revealing more and more about the human mind where, yes, they're guilty. Like, we're not like we can let them go free. Don't get me wrong. But it's how we punish them. should be talking about finding more ways to heal them uh, than to punish them. And uh, again, that's my book. We're not here to talk about my book today. The story of you about Yumasaki on Amazon. <laughs> no, we are here. If you follow me on social media, especially on TikTok, um, and thank you all who follow. I've only been on there a brief amount of time, and I'm already at thousands of followers, so I really appreciate you. But they have a three-minute upload limit. So I've been doing some interviews with uh, serial killers like Happy Faith, Keith Jesperson, uh, serial killer Dana Gray, and, and, and the list goes on. But I only have three minutes, so we might have a half-hour conversation. Usually a lot of prison facilities have a half-hour time limit, some 15 minutes. Um, so I have to kind of edit that down pretty, um, pretty far. Um, and the vampire of Paris, Nico Clue, who we're going to be hearing from today, um, I had to make it a seven-part interview. Uh, I've known Nico for a few years now. Um, he's a great artist. Uh, he'll give his websites later on, but uh, um, serialpleasures.com. Uh, you can just Google his name on, on Facebook and Instagram. He's on TikTok, too, but Facebook and Instagram is where you're going to spend most of his time. And um, he's very accessible. Uh, so reach out to him if you want to say hello. Tell me you heard the podcast. Tell me you heard... Saw the videos on TikTok. He really enjoyed the way they turned out. But from that interview, um, he sent me video responses to a bunch of questions that I had. And that's where you can see it over on TikTok. I think I uploaded my Instagram page too. But this is the unedited version. That's why I started this podcast because everybody wanted to hear more. Uh, well, I'm giving you more. <laughs> so uh, uh, a bunch of questions uh, Nico answered for me. Again, a video form is going to be the unedited version. So I don't know. It's about a half hour or so. Um, I'm going to edit my questions on here that way you can kind of hear me clear instead of trying to upload what i said on instagram um you'd rather hear through it in my studio here on the microphone um so who is nico clue the vampire of paris the cannibal himself uh i think it was 1994 he was actually arrested for murder um he and i'll let him tell a lot of his story um but one day when he was young he had this urge um and actually if you google the the police interview you can if you dig it up you can hear some of this um, he just had this urge, irresistible urge to dig up corpses and kind of just mutilate their bodies. Um, and one day he did, I think the first one he did was an old lady, he fried open the casket, didn't take him long to do it. And like, you know, the teeth were coming through the skin, the eyeballs were gone. Talking about the, the sheet covering up was kind of sticking to her skin. It was all kind of gnarly. Um, and he had a screwdriver with him. And he started stabbing her stomach through the rib cage over and over. So like 50 times kept stabbing her and stabbing her. And it just... It just excited him, uh, and he started doing it constantly. And almost all of his free time, that's what he did. He just went to the graves, and he just desecrated everything. He just mutilated all these bodies, um, really, up until the time of his arrest, really. Um, and, and another thing, that his fascination 
with, and we'll talk about his fear. Um, does he have fear doing things like that? And that's one thing that damaged amygdala can do is take away your ability to fear fear. Um, he worked in the morgue. He was a morgue attendant, and the morgue attendant is the one who cut up the bodies. You know, that, that big Y-shape kind of incision, you know, they cut this uh, with this, the saw, you know, cut the skull open. And, you know, the other person really does, you know, the, the pathologist himself does, you know, taking out the organs and stuff. But what he would do when he was left alone to stitch them back up, he would take strips of meat off of them and eat them. You know, he, a butcher once told him, I think, about after three or four days after, after the body was animal, was dead, that's the best time to eat the meat. And that's what he would do. He would, he would cut and fillet. He would fillet the bodies and take them home and eat them. And he would look at the report to make sure the bodies weren't too old. Um, so that's a little bit about Nico's background. Um, so we're going to talk to Nico. And then part of my book also, The Stewart Review, I mentioned Charles Whitman. Uh, Charles Whitman was somebody who um, did end up having a tumor pressing up against his amygdala. Um, lived a normal life from the military, but as he got older in life, he lived in Texas, and he had this urge to kill. Uh, he ended up killing his wife, uh, killing his mother. Uh, then he went on the tower at the University of Texas, or Texas University, one of the two on his tower, and just started sniping people. I don't know how many key people he killed, I forget. Uh, numerous people until the police finally killed him. But he wrote a note um, that you can read. Again, I published it in my book. You can read. You can just even read the note online. Um, about him saying, you don't know where these urges came from. You know, he's like, I'm not a bad person. I just have this urge, uncontrollable urge. And he gave permission to do an autopsy on his brain. And that's what they found out, that that tumor was pressing up against his amygdala. But I found out that Nico, Nico has a connection to Charles Whitman. So I asked him what that connection was. When I was about 21, I was attending a university of psychology classes in uh, the center of Paris, and there was this huge tower in the university where that I was uh, attending. And um, during my free time, I uh, checked the locks uh, for the uh, the stairs that would lead to the, the roof of the tower. And um, uh, I had spent many years studying mass murders. Um, people like uh, um, Mark Lepine in uh, Canada and um, all those uh, people who uh, killed in schools or universities. School shooters weren't really a thing in the late 80s, but uh, yeah, that's something that I was fascinated with. And... One of the stories that I liked the most was uh, Charles Whitman, who was on top of the tower at the University of Texas and shot many people. So um, it was my goal to um, do the same. But uh, then I found a job in a morgue and I uh, began to have other priorities. Nico, you grew up as a child. I think even before six years old, you lived in Africa. You lived in England. You lived in Paris. Um, do you draw from the, all those cultural experiences in your art? I mean, is that why you're so diverse in what you do? You have your hands in so many awesome things. Uh, is that one of the reasons why? Uh, first and foremost, I'm a painter. So my influence as a painter comes from Rembrandt and Goya. And more recently, Joe Coleman, those are the, the artists that I respect the most. 
I am also heavily influenced by the artists, the, the anonymous artists who work in monasteries during the Middle Ages and who created those magnificent descriptions of hell uh, and torments inflicted to the sinners. I've always been influenced by them. I'm also influenced by uh, the art of uh, Thai torture gardens. There's a lot of uh, um, torture gardens in Thailand that depict the uh, Buddhist hell. So it's statues, human-sized statues showing demons torturing sinners. And uh, when I was a kid, my dad would come back from Thailand and show me the, the photos that he took there because it was part of his store when he was there. He, he used to work for for a bank and he would travel around the world, but uh, he was sent to Thailand a few times. And as a kid, those pictures really influenced me. So yeah, I can say that uh, having a, a father who was a world traveler and having traveled a lot, yes, I can say that all those influences more or less developed my uh, artistic mind in some way. I read somewhere that something happened to you uh, like a revelation or an awakening, if you will, at your grandfather's wake. Can you tell us what specifically happened? The circumstances of my grandfather's death were really special since we were uh, playing a, a game of badminton together. And uh, he had a stroke and a few af days after he died and uh, uh, part of my family blamed me on this. I was uh, only 10 years old. There was this feeling of guilt when it happened. But uh, what struck me the, the, the most during that time was the funeral wake and uh, the mm, feeling of being in uh, another world when I was in the room where his casket was. And uh, was not so much focused on, on his body inside the casket, but on the atmosphere surrounding me and this atmosphere of uh, humility and uh, fear that uh, all the adults around me were, were, you know, couldn't hide all those strong emotions that, uh, you know, as a kid, I, I didn't have many emotions, but this, uh, the, the emotions that I, I felt and that I felt coming from uh, all the people surrounding me in the morgue, yeah, there were definitely something that shaped my uh, mind and shaped the person who I, I became later on. Now, you are known as the Vampire of Paris, uh, an admitted cannibal. You've done time for murder, and you've talked about the urges to kill more people and multiple people. But has the artwork kind of suppressed those urges for you? And what would happen if the artwork was taken away? Or are you so invested in your art and your creativity that you don't really have those urges anymore. It's safe to say that, uh, yes, I found my own redemption, even if I don't like to use the word redemption because of its religious connotation. But I found my own freedom through uh, art and developing my art skills and expressing all those inner thoughts and intrusive thoughts in a creative manner, 
and uh, using painting at first, then writing, and um, there's a fascinating connection between the act of killing and the act of creating. And this is why the artwork of serial killers is so interesting because the very same hands that killed are able to create something, uh, painting or, or even writing for uh, for people like Danny Rowling or Joao Schaefer and their writings are really fa fascinating. Uh, one of my fav favorite books is uh, Pee-wee Gaskin's Final Truth. Uh, it's a uh, it's a masterpiece. Uh, this is what I'm looking for when I'm I'm trying to find new authors and and uh, trying to develop my own publishing company. I have my own company publishing company that's called Seal Pleasures Publishing and I want to develop this approach to true crime but from the uh, from the other perspective from, from the eyes of the main character that's involved in the, the stories of true crime and because if you if you look at him if you look at things objectively uh, the best way to describe a crime is through the eyes of the the killer and there's absolutely no no doubt about it it's it's obvious so yes uh, i prefer to read true crime books that were written by the killers themselves and uh or I want to approach true crime from a different perspective, not from the cop perspective or the journalist perspective, because they, they all lack something. Uh, only a killer will tell you what it's like to kill after all. So this is, yeah, this is why I'm doing the literally literary work that I'm doing these days. You recently published an amazing book on Richard Ramirez. I have my copy here. I got a nice little signed copy with a fingerprint in blood, of course. <laughs> Can you tell us why you chose Richard for this book? Uh, and it really turned out very, very well. Uh, what was a certain inspiration from him? I believe you used to be one of his pen pals also. Uh, so what made you pick Richard Ramirez for this project? So a few months ago, I wrote this book called Legions of the Night Stalker. Uh, it's about Richard Ramirez, of course, but it's most of all it's about uh, his life in prison and the letters that he received from uh, fans and uh, groupies, but also uh, people who visited him in prison and uh, people who were just fascinated by his case. He would get some something like. 50 letters a week. Uh, I was one of his pen pals when I was in prison myself and we had this special correspondence in the, the late uh, 90s. I'm talking about the, this in the book but it's also about uh, other people's experiences and uh, the letters they, they got from him. So it's interviews of people who have this Richard Ramirez fascination but also uh, I show the work of artists who were influenced by him and uh, directors. It's a really complete book. Uh, it's 
It has lots, lots, lots of uh, photographs and never-before-seen documents. So, yeah, you can find the book on Amazon.com or ZeroPleasures.com. Now, I know for myself, I want to be walking around the cemetery in the daytime. <laughs> on a bright, sunny day, I'd be freaked out. I have seen multiple videos with you, um, even tours almost. I guess maybe some local podcasters or somebody maybe made the trip down there to see you. And you give all these cemetery tours and... Um, they were scared to death, and it was the daytime. You've been doing it at night, and from grave robbing and, and going in all these buildings at nighttime. Obviously, it does not freak you out. Do you have the ability to fear fear? And if you do, what scares Nico? Okay, let's put it this way. Um, I spent most of my youth in prison. I spent most of my adult life working in morgues and hanging around graveyards. So it's safe to say that I'm not really scared of anything. Um, what scares me? People scare me, honestly. Uh, especially big gatherings of people, crowds train stations i don't feel comfortable at all around people transports um yeah and just you know the just the, the you know lack of lack of intelligence scares me a lot and you see that more and more with this current generation it's sad to say but uh, it's, it's the sad truth we are living in a world ruled by idiocracy and for intelligent people like me it's kind of hard to adjust to this you know surrounding because those people they're they're, they're just pollute the air and the atmosphere with their stupid thoughts and their, their you know uh, um, indigenous um, moral intellectual and cultural indigenous so yes it's really hard for people like you know people with education and i got my own education in jail i I, I didn't really get into big studies or anything but uh you know all the time my life has been a constant uh struggle to be better at what i'm doing I uh, learn everything I know about editing books myself. I learn everything about paintings myself, everything I learn myself. And I think that if you spend your life stagnating or even worse, uh, being dragged down all the time by uh, TV shows and and social networks, um, it's, it's... it's sad, but it's a reality, and this is what scares me. I mean, uh, just the fact that you know humanity is hopeless. Not that I'm really a huge fan of humanity from the start. You know, I'm a misanthrope, anyways. But I just, you know, I don't think think that things are going are going to be all right. You know, humanity is a sad affair. I saw a video in France. Uh, I'm assuming it's some type of a tomb where there were thousands of skeletons, and I mean thousands of skeletons, like stacked on top of each other, like in a very specific way. 
Um, what is the meaning behind? Have you heard of that first of all? And is there any specific meaning of why they do that? Why they stack it in that specific way? So what you have to understand is that we're talking about uh, ossuaries, and ossuaries is the place where they pile up bones and skulls. Uh, usually, it's inside a church or chapel because back in the medieval times, there was lots of plagues, of course. And one way to exercise the threat of dying for the monks was to use the bones and to use them to decorate their churches and build altars, kind of like uh, what Jeffrey Dahmer did uh, about 30 years ago, but with, of course, uh, something else in mind. Uh, I love those places. There's lots of places like that all around Europe, mostly in... Uh, in Austria, Italy, and Germany. There's a few in France too, but uh, Paris, of course, has the biggest Austria of them all. It's called the Catacombs. They are located in uh, tunnels under Paris. So there's two kinds of catacombs. Uh, when people talk about catacombs, they're, usually they're, they're, they're talking about what we call the illegal ones. It's the one that only those who have a map have access to. And um, uh, I think there's even a horror movie based on this. It's called As Above, So Below. Uh, I recommend the movie. And uh, I don't really like those catacombs. There's bones, there's pile of bones, but uh, you have to walk for hours in the mud and in tunnels. And uh, you have to crawl through really... <coughs> you have to crawl through really... Uh, small tunnels to get access to those parts they're kind of disappointing the most interesting part of the catacombs are what we call the official ones that's the that's the that's the one that you have to pay for and uh, they are uh, these days that you can only have access to them if you book tickets online which is totally stupid because most of the tourists who come to paris don't even know that you have to book tickets for the catacombs so they, they arrive at the entrance of the catacombs and the, the guy at the entrance tells them that oh, sorry you cannot come in you have to book them online and there's a two weeks waiting queue so that's ridiculous but uh, yeah that's the way it goes uh this those are the, the only ones that are worth uh, having a look are you working on any new projects anything that you can share with us Projects. I have plenty of projects. I'm working uh, a lot on my uh, publishing company, Serial Pleasures Publishing. And you can uh, check it out on serialpleasures.com. So I uh, I'm specialized in true crime books, but I also do uh, art books with uh, other artists. The next book will be a book on Jonestown, and uh, it will show never before seen forensic photos taken by uh, a uh, US Air Force photograph. So the person who um, uh, currently owns the pictures got them at a state auction and uh, uh, they show the autopsies of the victims of the, the mass suicide. They show the, the autopsy photos of Jim Jones himself 
and uh, it's it's an amazing book. Well, there you have it, the vampire of Paris himself, Nico Clou. A big thanks to Nico for being so generous and kind with his time. Um, you can reach out to him on SerialPleasures.com. Search his name on Instagram, on Facebook, on TikTok. Um, again, he's very generous with his time. He will respond to you. Um, I would encourage you um, to get some artwork from him. He's always, You'll see on Serial Pleasures, you follow him. He's always working on something new. Um, I know for Christmas, one of my gifts I'm going to treat myself to are these real skulls that he paints. I want to get the one that he paints like John Wayne Gacy painting. He'll do anything that you want. Again, very kind, very generous, and a big thanks to Nico. I even have a custom piece. If you follow me on social media, uh, you know how I collect art. Not just from serial killers, uh, but some of the top names, top true crime artists out there. I love the depiction of a crucifix going through the head of a serpent, kind of a depiction from Genesis. Um, you can see the piece that Nico specifically did for me on, on my TikTok page or my Instagram page. Um, he's a great artist. If you want some real blood on there, a couple bucks extra, but I'd be glad to do it for you. Uh, so again, big thanks to Nico and a big thanks to all of you. Uh, this is episode one of my podcast, A Lighter Side of Serial Killers. Uh, so I hope you stay tuned for more. We're going to have much more coming up. we got some Keith Jesperson, the Happy Face Killer, coming up. we got some Dana Gray. Um, we're going to hear from Sam Hain, one of the most legendary true crime artists out there. So again, big shout out to Nico Clue. Follow him again on Instagram, Facebook, SerialPleasures.com. And until next time, see you later.